Father, there is something about this season that has both beauty and pain attached to it. Father, for so many this season, the loss of loved ones, the relational disconnects, the feeling of rejection and isolation is magnified. So in the midst of that grief and that heartbreak and that pain, God, there is a desperate desire to feel seen and understood. And the beauty is that is in Jesus coming in the form of a baby, vulnerable, exposed, lowly in the manner with which he did, that we are assured that we are seen and we are understood. And that you love us in a way that we can't even fully comprehend. So the beauty of this Advent season is the promise that indeed Jesus is Emmanuel. That you are with us, that you are for us, that you've entered into that pain and that you desire to offer us something greater. God, may we embrace that. May we lean into that. May we be reminded and experience the confirmation necessary that our own brokenness and our own pain and our own heartbreak is matched and ultimately outdone by the hope that Christmas offers. It is indeed a resilient hope. It is a sticky hope. It is a hope that transcends circumstances, transcends the questions, the doubts, and moves us into a greater opportunity to live the life that you've called us to, to love well those that you bring into our sphere, to take risks that we would not otherwise take, to experience the purpose and the meaning that can only be found in you. Thank you for your grace, Father. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I think it's a universally sought-out desire of all of us to figure out how to find meaning and purpose in the seemingly senseless, oftentimes devastating realities and circumstances of life. Whether it be the loss of a loved one tragically, whether it be the unanswered prayers that we feel like God just hasn't heard us, he hasn't responded the way that we wanted or expected, whether it be just current events in our world and the chaotic nature of those things, whether that be um, just natural events that cause devastation, whether it be significant financial challenges that we're walking through, whether that be relational conflict that we can't figure out how to resolve, what, whatever it is, there's this longing of the human heart to be able to, to have confidence that there's meaning, that there's purpose, that it's not just chaotic. 
It feels random. It feels purposeless. And yet there's this longing for us to be able to find some sort of meaning, to believe that it's not just completely chaotic and we are just left on our own to figure it out. Is there a why behind the what? Is there a why behind what it is that we're experiencing? Or is Richard Dawkins right when he wrote in Out of Eden, A River Out of Eden, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless, pitiless indifference. Merry Christmas. Is he right? Is this just the world that we live in? Is this the nature of our broken humanity? It's interesting because whether you're a Jesus follower or not, you read that and, and for some maybe ardent individuals, maybe you go, yes, that's exactly right. But for the most of us and the average individual, we read that and we go, that can't be true. I don't know what's true, but that can't be true. That, that can't be the world that I live in because there's a fatalism attached to that that makes no sense to me. So we, we come up with ways of managing that, right? We use phrases like, it was just meant to be. That's just the way things go sometimes. When one door closes, another one opens. We, we find ways to, to solve that angst by coming up with some sort of cliches that make us feel a little better. We long to believe that there is something more in the midst of this. And I would say it this way. One of our greatest longings in life is finding purpose and meaning in the seemingly random and difficult circumstances we encounter. It's one of the greatest longings that we have. But here's the problem. Sometimes that longing becomes toxic for us. Because sometimes the longing to be able to find meaning and purpose in it makes us begin to question the God who loves us and has the purpose and plan in place. Because we can't make sense out of it and we can't bridge the gap between what we see and who God is and his sovereignty and the fact that he operates in ways that we don't fully comprehend. And so we begin to doubt him and we begin to question his goodness. Sometimes we begin to question his relevance and ultimately sometimes we begin to question his existence. Or we do the opposite. We then, because we so desperately want to defend God, we come up with these trite things to say, well, God is just sovereign, so just trust him. It's okay. You just have to let go and trust God. And we come up with all kinds of ways in Christianese to say the same thing. Well, that's just the way life goes. When one door closes, another opens. We come up with some sort of sovereign way of talking about God in some protective manner to say, well, God's just, we just need to trust him. It's all good. We can't question God. You can't have doubts. If you have doubts, you're not trusting enough. You just need to have enough faith. And so we go one of two directions. Either we find ourselves beginning to lose that faith and we lose our footing, or we find ourselves overly reducing the conversation to such a level that we're just trying to defend God without really any meaningful engagement in the struggle itself. And what I'm going to suggest is this, that I think Christmas offers us a different option. 
I think the Christmas season and the story of Christmas and the reality of what Christmas is and what it's offered to us gives us something different. Keller says it this way. He says, Christmas shows us that over and over again, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I will choose the girl nobody wants. I will choose the boy everybody has forgotten. There is not just hope for the world, despite all its unending problems, but hope for you and me, despite all of our unending failings. There's just something about the reality of Christmas and, and, and Christ coming in the form of a baby and entering into our broken, chaotic world that takes away the despair and the hopelessness, but also takes away our need to somehow defend God in a way that overly reduces and demystifies the conversation. And so we're going to do this through the lens of two characters. So Pastor Ben, over the last two weeks, has spent a great time, great job walking us through some of Isaiah and, and the, the, the hope that's been promised, the hope of what was to come and the, and the, the longing of the, of the condition of the Israelites as they were anticipating and uh, specifically the, the really the, the belief that somehow there's a Messiah that's going to come, that's going to deal with this, but there was this brokenness and 700 years before Christ came, there was the prophetic reality of that coming. And then 700 years later, we see that Christ actually enters in and he comes as the Messiah in a way that is completely different, unexpected than what anybody could have anticipated. But I want to see hope the hope of Christmas through the lens of Joseph and through the lens of Simeon. So Joseph today, Simeon next Sunday, as we think of hope. And so what I want to do is, we know some of Joseph's story, but there was a video put out a few years ago that was kind of looking at Joseph through the lens of social media. If social media was around when this was playing out for Joseph, just imagine what that may have looked like. It's so interesting that 2,000 years later, we read these stories and we gloss over them quickly. We go back and we reread them during this season specifically. And so often it, it's so sanitized, it's so disconnected from us that it's hard to embrace the magnitude, the intensity, the emotion that surrounded these events. So I think about Joseph and I just want for a few minutes to, to spend some time thinking about his own experience through this because I think when the longing of our heart is to make sense out of, to bring order into the chaos and to believe that there's something purposeful in the midst of what's going on, just maybe for a moment set aside so much of what you already know and have considered and just consider once again the emotional impact of all of this for Joseph and how he had to navigate this. We picked this up in Matthew chapter 1. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. In the Gospels, we've got two different nativity narratives, this in Matthew and the one in Luke. Matthew starts out with a genealogy, and then he moves quickly into this part of the narrative, which is Joseph's perspective on it. Luke starts it differently and moves quickly into Zachariah and Elizabeth's experience with John, and then moves into 
Mary and the experience that Mary had. And, and so often we're familiar with that. And again, this is familiar territory to us, but just for a moment, emotionally, the impact for Joseph of being a man who was a carpenter, a man who, who has a future in mind, has now taken on a fiancé, the anticipation of what has come. He's paid for this fiancé, meaning there's been a dowry, there's been an exchange, there's a commitment that's been made. He's invested heavily in his future. He has aspirations for his future. Uh, this woman he believes to be a, a woman of purity, who's godly, who both of them come from the, the lineage of David. They both have a family connection that they see and they understand. It's, it's a good, healthy, awesome anticipation of what the future is as much as it's a very lowly set of conditions not abject poverty but pretty limited in means and he has his future in mind and then he discovers while he's anticipating that future with his soon-to-be wife that she has become pregnant and that Mary has communicated something about this angel appearing and he's trying to make sense out of whether or not she's just completely crazy. Whether she, he can trust her. What does he know to be true about her? None of this stuff makes any sense to him. And so you have Joseph knowing that in this day and age, the public shame that was going to be brought on Mary and on him, the public shame that was going to be a part of their lives going forward because of this pregnancy, the reality that for uh, indeed, whatever he was to decide, it was going to have significant impact on Mary. The possibility that, that in that public shaming, uh, that she could be further ostracized from her family, she could become destitute, something even worse could happen based on some of the, the penal realities of that time when it came to some of the laws. And so for him, there was a deep desire to be able to respond in the most gracious way imaginable but for him his heart is broken his future has been completely fractured and the world has been turned upside down and yet even in the midst of that as Matthew points out Joseph makes a decision and this is his decision grace and kindness are still possible in the face of immense pressure and heartbreak grace and kindness are still possible in the face of immense pressure and heartbreak can we can we just lean into that for a minute it's so often that when our worlds get turned upside down, when we go through loss, when, when things happen that feel chaotic, feel unfair, that we've been dealt an injustice, or we don't know whether we can trust God with our current circumstances, physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, or otherwise, that somehow, way, we throw out God's design and desire for us, and we start to justify all kinds of things. I don't have to be gracious and kind when I'm dealing with somebody who's hurt me. I can be as harsh, I can be as, uh, as defensive as I wanna be. I don't have to be gracious and kind when I'm under immense pressure. In fact, how many times have we said to people, I'm sorry, I was just dealing with a lot of pressure at that time. Or you just have to understand what I was going through. In fact, if you understood what I was going through, you would be okay with how I handled that. You would not be upset with me. Or you just need to understand my experiences better and then you will not expect so much from me. We do it all the time. And our culture somehow em embraces that as though somehow a lack of kindness, a lack of generosity, a lack of appropriate 
handling of situations is completely justifiable as long as you can come up with a good rationale. And while there is a great deal of empathy for the hurt and the pain that people experience and that we need to be advocates for people who are marginalized and struggling in immense ways and there's a graciousness that we need to showcase there, the reality is this. Joseph made a decision. That grace and kindness are still possible even when my heart is broken and I'm facing immense pressure because he's not going to do what is in his own best interest, which is to further alienate himself or alienate Mary by distancing himself from her and saying, I want nothing to do with this. She has lied. She has deceived. This is on her and I'm going to go find a different path towards the future. Verse 20, we pick it up. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So he he has this angel appear to give him some sort of confirmation that Mary is not lying. That indeed what Mary said about the Holy Spirit coming on her and this, this, this being a miraculous pregnancy is something that the Holy Spirit confirms that. that. She will have a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because indeed he is the one who's going to come and rescue his people. Now, we read that and we go, oh, okay, Joseph got clarification. He got confirmation. He's good. And that's why we see what Joseph did. But can you just read that with me once more time? In the midst of a future that has been completely disrupted, in the midst of incredible heartbreak, and in the midst of his entire world being turned upside down, all he gets is, yeah, Mary's not lying to you. There's something miraculous happening. And this this baby is going to be named Jesus because he's going to rescue his people. And Joseph is supposed to make a decision based on that information. Well, we go on in verse 22 and it tells us this. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. And this is where it kind of reaches back and it grabs a hold of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so there's something beautiful about what Joseph has been given, but if you're honest, even this moment for him isn't exactly everything that he needs. Because when we're looking for hope, when we're looking for explanation, when we're looking to make sense out of the ordeals of life, there is confirmation that comes. We get reassurance from people, but here's what we often do. Yeah, 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 but I still need more. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that God is good, that God is gracious, that God has been faithful in the past and he'll be faithful in the future, but, but I just need him to reveal more to me. I, I need more clarification. I need a relief from what is going on and then I can trust him better. I need him to show up in a different way. I need something more tangible. It would have been so easy for Joseph to decide, yeah, that ain't enough for me. I need more. And, and if we're honest, that's our tendency. In fact, when we're going through stuff that we don't like, where we feel that angst, where we feel out of control, in some ways, here's the problem. When we're feeling out of control, for those of us who are control freaks who like to be in control, and it's more of us than we think it is, by the way. You look around the room and go, that's not me. If you're looking around saying it's not me, it probably is. But that's all right. That's a different conversation. 
Here's the, here's the crazy part. If we're looking for affirmation, if we're looking for greater clarity, it becomes a black hole. And actually, if you're using, I need more clarity, I need more specific revelation. I need God to do more for me to act. I promise you, you'll never have enough to satisfy that. And you will always have a reason to not take action. You will be able to justify any level of resistance, any level of animosity, any level of disobedience. If your posture is, I just need God to do more. How many times have you talked to people who are going through something or they're making terrible decisions and they say something like this, I'm just waiting for God to change my heart. Really? You're waiting for God to change your heart so you'll stop doing what you know you shouldn't be doing with that woman. You're just waiting for God. Or you're just waiting for God to finally give you relief financially and then you'll take a step toward generosity. If that's your posture, you're never gonna have enough because that's the human condition. There's never enough to do what is right when you make the decision that it's only if I get enough that I'm actually going to do what it is that is right. Don't ask me to say that again. Right? Like, there's, there's just this insatiable need for more if we decide that that's the rationale for not doing what it is that we know we need to do. And Joseph finds himself in an incredibly difficult predicament where he's been given something but if I'm honest, if I'm Joseph, it ain't close to enough. It's something. But I could easily wake up from that dream going, yeah, 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 I had, I had probably a little bit too much to drink last night. I'm not even sure what to make of all of that. It would have been very easy for him to be dismissive of what it is that he had been given. And here's the crazy part. When we actually are looking for confirmation in a way that we're not looking for a reason not to act, but we're looking for a reason to take action, God will always give us enough confirmation for that. But you will never get enough confirmation or enough clarity to take action when you're looking for a reason not to. You hear me? When you're recognizing God is moving in your heart to take action. If you're saying, God, I need, I need clarification. I need, I need something to help me be able to have the confidence to take this risk. God will bring that. He'll bring it. He'll break your heart for something. He'll rile your, your heart to rejoice in something. You'll get other people that speak into that. But if you're looking for a reason not to act, you'll always find that too. So, so often our interpretation is based on the posture of our heart. So what do we see in verse 24? This is what Joseph does. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relationships with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. He did exactly what he'd been told to do. He stepped into a future that he knew was going to be incredibly challenging. He literally woke up from the dream, decided, I know that this is going to create a heartbreaking, difficult, painful future, and I'm saying yes. And I'm doing it without having the full picture. I'm doing it without having as much clarity as I want to have. I'm doing it without being able to have confidence that all of this somehow is going to come together in some neat package. I'm just going to trust that God is in this, that he has a plan, that he's working, and I'm just going to move forward. And I'm going to do what it is that I have the power to do. And I'm going to trust him with the outcomes. See, here's what we do. Until we can control outcomes, oftentimes we are resistant to even take a first step. 
Until we can predetermine what the outcomes are going to be, we oftentimes will limit our posture and limit our willingness to take action. And we'll do it through the lens of, but God didn't give me enough. He didn't reveal enough. He didn't deal with issues in a way. He didn't answer my prayers in a way. He did not provide enough clarity for me. When the truth is, it's because our hearts were resistant anyway. And we just came up with a rationale to do what it is that our hearts always wanted to do. But I, I love this about Joseph because I, I would say it this way. Courage, Joseph sh showed incredible courage. And here's, by the way, courage and confidence are two different things. Sometimes we don't have confidence in something, but we have to show courage anyway because we have courage that comes through who God is, not confidence in our own abilities. Courage is about looking about who God is and facing that and moving forward in that. Confidence has so much to do with what we think we're capable of doing. Courage is a willingness to move in the direction of fear and uncertainty, embracing the risks and surrendering control over the outcome. Courage is the willingness to move in the direction of fear and uncertainty. Fear and uncertainty. What is our natural inclination when we get afraid? Self-protection. When we get afraid, we go into a self-protective posture. Our brain does it to us, right? We come by this naturally. This isn't, a, this isn't like a, a, a huge spiritual thing. This is just kind of like, this is reality for us. Fear causes us to become incredibly self-protective. You're coming up to a stoplight and you feel like you're moving a little bit too quickly. So you take your hand and you reach across to protect your kid on the right-hand side. You just do it naturally, right? It's an instinctive thing. You kind of brace yourself. You're a little bit lost and so you turn down the radio. So somehow you have less noise that's going to help you to focus a little bit better. Like there's just instinctive things that we do when we get a little bit disoriented. But the truth is, courage is not the absence of fear has been said so well. It's the ability to rise up in the face of it. And, and here's, here's the crazy part. The Christian life, what God is calling you to right now, whatever's next for you, and here's, here's the, the, the motto for our church is this. We're just asking the question consistently. If God is moving and he's inviting us to follow, then there always is a what's next. And we got to answer the what's next question. What is next for you? Because there always is something, right? There's always a next for us. No matter where you are in your own spiritual journey, there's a next for you. And the question is, what's next? And the next is always going to require courage. Because what's new is always found in the unknown. What's new is found in the unknown. And newness is the thing that's next. Because the thing that's next for you isn't the known and the familiar and the been there, done that, and I can do this with my eyes closed and my hands tied behind my back. That's not new. That's not, that's not faith. That's not obedience. That's a list of beliefs. That's not faith. And some of us identify ourselves as believers, and the way we do it is we have a belief system that we hold to, and this is what defines us. That's not faith. That's belief. Faith is walking with Jesus, which is asking, what's next? What is the unknown that I need to step into? What is the thing that I can't control the outcomes of? And I need to be willing to decide that this is the thing that God is calling me to so that I can grow in my faith and I can honor him more and that I can leverage the gifts, the abilities, the talents, the position that he's put me in to be able to maximize impact. What's next for us? And courage is a willingness to move in the direction, not away from, but in the direction of fear and uncertainty, embracing the risks. Again, I've said this so many times, but I think some of us have systematically eliminated risk from our lives. 
Some of us are so good at this. Just take away the risks. But to embrace the risk and surrender the control of the outcome. And as soon as I say that for some of us, when I ask us to surrender the control of the outcome, immediately there's almost panic that sets in. Because I have to surrender control of outcome. That means I don't have the ability to impose my will to make things happen. And I have to give up some level of control so that I can walk in obedience. Faith is regularly stepping outside of what is known and familiar and controllable into what is not. The question is, where are we in that? But here's, here's the other piece of Christmas for me. It is possible to possess hope even when we don't have explanations. It is possible. Some of you right now, this is, this is our reality, right? Whether it, be, whether it be in the face of significant loss, whether it be in the face of incredible frustration because people don't meet our expectations, whether it be that we've stepped in a direction feeling like, like God was calling us to it and then he didn't show up in the way that we thought he would and we experienced more financial challenges, things didn't work out for us in the way that we thought they would, and so we've taken a risk and somehow it didn't work out. And when we don't have good explanation for that, when we don't feel like we can come up with a good narrative that makes sense out of that, we lose hope. We step back from that. And, and Joseph's experience just screams to me, there's hope even when there's not full explanations. And I can move in that direction even when there's not. 1 Peter 1 says it this way, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us a new birth through a living hope and a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The hope that we possess is not because of us being able to control outcomes or circumstances or having full explanation for everything. It's because there's been a resurrection. And that this baby that was in the crib, we'll talk about more of this about next week because this is Simeon's proclamation about this baby, this eight-day-old baby in, the, in his arms is, is this proclamation of what was to come. That that baby in the manger was going to grow to become the man who lived a perfect life and then allowed himself to be put on a cross and then ultimately will return as king. But that resurrection is the thing that differentiates Christianity from every other faith. That our God is a God who wears wounds, that made himself accessible, gave, gave himself up for us, and prophesied that he was going to rise again three days later and then did it. So let me, let me say it this way about Christmas. Christmas offers us hope anchored not in our ability to predict and interpret our circumstances. Rather, anchored to a God who entered in taking away the power of those circumstances to define or destroy us. Can we just sit in that for a second? Christmas offers us hope, anchored not in our ability to predict and interpret our circumstances. You don't have to have a full explanation for what's going on. Here's the deal. I believe that one of the most unfortunate things that we do in the Christian life is we overly reduce things to let go and let God. Well, we just have to trust God. There, there, there is something to trusting God in the midst of this. And ultimately, that's where we've got to get to. But sometimes that's a journey. That's not something that we just snap our fingers and it's there. Jesus in the garden showed us that. How many times does Jesus pray out, God, please take this from me? 
and then gets to the end of his prayer and says, but not my will, but yours be done, then gets up and then has to go back and do the same thing over and over again, three times in the garden. I've got to get to a place where I'm willing to trust God, but there's mystery in that. There's, there's something about wrestling with my own angst and my own questions and my own doubts and being willing to own those doubts, not as a sign of a lack of faith, but as a way of working through my faith and embracing something that's more authentic and that's sustainable. Christmas offers us hope anchored not in our ability to predict and interpret our circumstances, rather anchored to a God who entered in, taking away the power of those circumstances to define us. This is the beauty of the hope of Christmas. Nothing that we've been through defines us. No mistakes that we've made or things that have been done to us. Not the victimization side of it, because we're all this. Like, here's the truth. We're all co-conspirators, right? So we're all victims and conspirators, meaning we have all had things happen to us outside of our control that we're victims of, and we have all contributed to our own brokenness. And neither one of those things define us. But here's also the beauty. Neither one of them has the power to destroy us. Because there's a hope that transcends all of that. So let me just land here for just a couple of minutes. How do you cling to hope? When you don't have explanations, when you can't create a narrative around that, when you can't make sense out of what's going on, when you can't look at it all and say, oh, yeah, 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 I got it. I'm good. It all makes sense to me. How do you cling to hope in the midst of that? I'm just going to suggest four things. I'm going to use the acrostic just to help us remember it. Here's the first one. I got a hunger to know him more, not hunger for explanations more. The more that I get to know the God who entered in, the more that I get to know the God, the character of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the power of God, the, the confidence that I can have in the character of God, in the competence of God, in the compassion of God, the greater that I can lean into that and discover more of that, the better I'm going to be able to hope. Because here's the deal. The more we try to make sense out of our circumstances, sometimes it actually becomes a diminishing return. Because sometimes we're trying to come up with a reductionistic explanation for these things. And the truth is, there isn't one. Which is why I think sometimes one of the greatest answers that we can give anybody in the midst of hard circumstances is not just trust God. It's, I don't know. I don't know. But here's why I choose to trust that God is good in spite of it. Here's why I believe that we can trust God in the midst of it. But my willingness to say, I don't know, might be one of the most helpful things that I can offer anybody. In fact, here's what we know. Human thinking and, and the way that our brain and our emotions work on this, nobody cares about what's true unless they believe that what you have offered them is empathy and met them in that brokenness. If you're willing to meet somebody in that pain and empathize with their pain, they are more receptive to the truth that you want to offer. But we, in our desperate need to defend God, jump to a place of truth to say, no, this is what's true and this is what you need to claim and this is what you need to hold on to, rather than going, I don't know why that's happening. I don't know why that struggle is, continues like it is. I don't know why. And I can only imagine the pain and the heartbreak and the fear and the struggle that's in the midst of that. Now there is an opportunity to build a bridge to hope. Because now there's an opportunity to speak into, but where is it that I find meaning? How do I find hope in the midst of this? But when we jump to trying to make clean explanations for things, we actually cut off the ability for people to receive from us. We can win an argument, we can make a point, but we're not going to reach hearts. 
if we're not careful with that. The second thing, we need to outsource our confidence and our security. We need to outsource our confidence and our security. If my confidence and my security are found in what I'm capable of doing, if my confidence and security are found in my ability to make sense out of it, if my confidence and my security are found in what I have in the bank account or what my investments look like, my confidence and security are, are, are found in this vice that I have that I can hold on to and that this is going to give me pleasure in the midst of whatever is going on. When I trust myself or even trust other people for my confidence and security, it will always be found lacking. But if I'm willing to outsource my confidence and security into a God who loves me, a God who is gracious to me, and a God who has entered into my pain, that outsourcing of it changes the entire complexion of it. Because now it's not on shaky, shaky ground. Now it's not on me being able to perform or even expecting other people to perform. It's about in a God who never changes and has shown himself faithful time and again. Number three, prepare for the inevitable. I think sometimes hope is found in recognizing that you're going to meet up against stuff that you cannot explain, you cannot make sense out of, you cannot come up with an easy solution for, and you need to be prepared for that. So often we get shaken to life because we expected life to work out for us. We see people, other people struggle, but we're like, yeah, things will work out well for me. I can plan, I can anticipate, I can impose my will, I can control outcomes, it's going to be fine. And the truth is what happens is we face the realities of life and life just doesn't work out the way that we expect it to. And why is it that we lose hope in the midst of that? Because we believed that there was a formula. If I did this and I did this, then this is the way it would work. I've sat with so many people over the years in this setting and in other contexts where literally the belief was, I raised my kids in church. I grew up in a Christian family. I loved God. I did the things I was supposed to do from a duty perspective. I did the things that I was supposed to do as a Christian. And now I find myself in this situation with my kid, in my marriage, with my finances, with my career. Where is God if he did not show up the way I expected to because I did the things that I was expected to do. And if I'm transparent with you, some of you grew up in a church like I did, which is we were taught that God has a formula for this. We raise our kids the right way, we do things the right way, and then things are going to turn out a certain way. And then we question the goodness of God when the reality is it's a world that we live in that is broken. Is God still good when that stuff doesn't happen the right way? Absolutely. The problem is we had a formula in our head. And we lose hope because we thought that formula would play out for us. And then the fourth is this. We just embrace what Christmas offers. We embrace that God is with us because he is indeed Emmanuel in Jesus. We embrace the peace that was promised. We embrace a God who enters into our pain even when we can't fully comprehend our pain. We embrace a God that understands us and hears us and whose heart breaks with us even when we don't have solutions to what it is. That that lowly child in the crib eventually became the man on the cross. Let me close it this way and then we'll sing together as we close out our service. Paul David Tripp says it this way. The only hope the only help, the only rescue, the only healing, the only solace, the only balm, the only redemption, 
the only restoration for a broken, dysfunctional, sin-scarred, evil-infected, morally fallen, dark, and dangerous world isn't found in information, socialization, education, political solution, psychological insight, or personal reformation, but in the willing birth, righteousness, humiliation, suffering, sacrifice, and resurrection of a God-man redeemer. We can't will our way, educate our way, medicate our way out of this, politicize our way out of this. It is only found in the reality of God who sent his one and only son into this broken world to become a victim of this broken world so that he could rescue this broken world from itself. May we embrace what Christmas offers us while we hunger to know him more, outsourcing our confidence and our security in him, preparing for what is coming and will eventually affect us in embracing what Christmas gives us. Would you stand together, please?